This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots of chatter and uh, lots of discussion again about Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch as uh, their trial uh, for the murder of Laura Babcock continues. Uh, we talked about this yesterday, and, and what was so astounding on the first day yesterday was to uh, really acknowledge that Dellen Millard was representing himself in court, which is odd enough, but then he questions the father of the victim. Isn't that putting the victim's family through uh, extra not-needed stress? It just seems very odd, and, um, well, we'll find out more. Joseph Newberger is with us, uh, criminal lawyer, Newberger and Partners, LLP, and is with us now. Joseph, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, tell us about Dellen Millard uh, representing himself. How often does this happen? Is it common? And certainly in high-profile cases like this involving a murder charge, what are your thoughts? Well, it's certainly very rare in a murder case. Um, we've seen cases in the past where an accused has gone through one, two, or three lawyers, and then uh, at that point uh, somebody's stepping in on either an amicus basis or appointed uh, through the court to assist. So it's very, very rare that you have an unrepresented accused conducting their own defense in a high-profile murder case. But Mr. Millard does have that right. He can represent himself. Um, Who keeps an eye on what he's doing? Well, that's the judge. So uh, the judge will be uh, very careful, and this is an experienced trial judge. Uh, And you have to be careful about making sure that an unrepresented accused has a fair trial. So the judge has... Uh, a more onerous task, not only in ensuring that the questions asked by Mr. Millard are fair, appropriate, and relevant, and don't extend into abusive areas, um, but also to ensure that Mr. Millard has the opportunity to exercise his rights as guaranteed under the Charter and the right to a fair trial. So it's careful balancing, and the judge will have to pay careful attention to everything that's done in the courtroom and in particular Mr. Millard's actions and the questions that he asks of each witness. If Millard is not representing himself the way he should be and the way that it is normally done in court, is it the judge's obligation to to educate him on all of this? The judge can assist uh, to direct him a little bit with respect to cross-examination, but it's not the judge's role to conduct the defense for Mr. Millard. So a person who's unrepresented and decides to defend themselves takes that risk. The court is not obligated to construct the defense for the accused. So that's that's his position. But if there's something that's, you know, grossly outstanding to the judge, I mean, he certainly can give a suggestion, um, but he will not get into the fray of it, and that is not the judge's role. How does he offer suggestion with not incriminating the whole trial and Um, and, and seeming unbalanced? Right. So your concern is how would it would he uh, could it possibly happen that the judge would become too involved in the fray, too involved in the trial, and that it, it appears biased? A judge has to be extremely careful. So he won't be able to instruct Mr. Millard on appropriate questioning, but he can instruct him on non-appropriate questioning, and he can say, Mr. Millard, do you want to ask this witness about you know X, Y, and Z, which is perfectly fine because everybody would know that those are areas to cover in any event, and if Mr. Millard chooses to uh, or not, that's at his own folly. But the judge cannot be suggesting questioning, cannot uh, augment the questioning for the uh, for the accused. But one thing we have to remember, a judge always has the right to ask questions of a witness. So if the judge is confused on a point of evidence by any witness, the judge 
is free to ask questions to ensure that that evidence is properly covered before the trier of the fact, which is the jury. It's very limited. Rarely do judges ask uh, any extensive questions of, um, of a witness, and it happens more often in a judge-alone trial. But sometimes a judge can ask questions to clarify certain areas of the evidence if necessary. But obviously, this is uh, another realm for the judge. This is something else they have to. The judge would have to pay closer attention to. Would this delay the proce- the process at all? Unrepresented accused in trials are always much more difficult than when you have experienced counsel representing both the crown and defense. So this will prolong the process. Um, it may not prolong it that much because who knows? Mr. Millard may not cross-examine uh, certain witnesses. Um, it may not prolong it, but my experience is from from the system and hearing from the judiciary and others, because I've been involved in you know funding uh, for unrepresented accused, that you know unrepresented accused can lengthen trials and can make it unduly complicated. How does the prosecution react to this? I mean, it, what's different for them now as a result of this? Well, the the prosecution uh, will go about its case as it has already. So I don't think they should change their game plan simply because Mr. Millard is unrepresented. They know what they have to prove, and they're going to marshal that evidence along in an appropriate manner. If, however, they feel that Mr. Millard is taking advantage of a witness, abusing a witness, badgering a witness, then they will stand up and object in order to ensure that Mr. Millard's questions are appropriate and relevant. Who determines if Millard is fit for this job? Well, he's not fit for the job. That's, That's the whole point. I mean... Uh, you don't do your own surgery. I don't do my own uh, root canal. You know, we all go to our own experts to help us with these things. So he's not fit for this job. He may, you know, there are some um, represent people who may do a decent job of representing themselves, but this is a complex murder case, and an accused himself should never be representing themselves. But that's what he's chosen to do. There is a right to represent yourself. I know there were some issues. I happened to be in court when Mr. Millard appeared and was unrepresented, and the judge at that time was bending over backwards to try and find a way for Mr. Millard to retain counsel. But I'm not sure what came of that, but uh, Mr. Millard has this right, and he's going to exercise it as he sees fit constitutionally within the bounds of what's lawfully appropriate in the courtroom. Was this Millard's plan all along? I mean, did he, obviously, as you mentioned, the judge was trying to get him some sort of counsel, but was this plan? was this his plan? Did they know this going in? I have no idea. I mean, I know Mr. Millard has some issues with respect to funding. So there was a large estate. I think that estate was seized. There might have been bankruptcy proceedings. I know there was a uh, a receivership appointed, and there was a judge in the Superior Court in Toronto overseeing that. However, I believe that there was uh, materials before the court and a possible application in order to be granted to free up some money for Mr. Millard to retain counsel. I have no idea what happened to that proceeding. But there were some difficulties with him retaining counsel. And if legal aid, for example, determines that Mr. Millard had ample funds to retain counsel and for whatever reason he's not appropriately accessing them, then legal aid doesn't have to step in to have counsel Mm. available for that person. So I don't know if this was his plan, um, but maybe he wanted to represent himself all along, and and this really was his intent. I, I, I don't know. Would his mental stability be questioned here to see, and that's what I meant by being fit to do this, obviously he's not qualified, but would his mental stability be questioned to see if he's making the right decision here? And again, not well, that, I'm, def- I, I not that I'm defending him here, but it's just, yeah. man, he's questioning the victim's father on the stand. I mean, it just seems bizarre. It is, but, you know, um, that doesn't mean you're unfit. So mm-hmm. let's talk about fitness from the mental health standpoint. 
to determine fitness for an accused, they have to understand very rudimentary aspects of the court system. Do they know the role of the judge, the role of a prosecutor, the role of a defense lawyer, pleading guilty or not guilty? The threshold, as we call it, the Taylor test, is rather a low threshold to achieve. He's clearly fit. He understands all the roles, the players, and what has to be done. His execution of defending himself is poor, and that's because he doesn't have this experience, and unfortunately, there may be other issues with Mr. Millard. Um, I'm not one to malign anybody who's before the court, but there may be other psychological issues at play, which is causing him to do this. And so, But that doesn't impact as to whether he is mentally fit to uh, stand trial. I, I don't think anybody has raised the issue that he's unfit. And um, from what I know of the case, he certainly understands everybody's role in the courtroom. Uh, again, getting, getting back to the father, the victim's father being questioned yeah. by Millard, the person who is accused of taking her life, is this not putting the victim's family through undue stress? Well, we have to not jump to guilt. So in any trial, the basic principle is an accused is presumed innocent until a court finds the accused guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So everybody who enters a trial is presumed innocent, and they have a right to a fair trial and to ask appropriate questions of any witness. The, the victim's father may or may not have relevant evidence to give in the proceeding through a cross-examination. So if, if this is a circumstantial case, for example, and, and let's just talk more hypothetically, if it's a circumstantial case, an accused or the lawyer cross-examining the um, father of the victim may want to lay out a foundation that, in fact, there was a very healthy relationship between the accused and the victim, and he never saw uh, any uh, ill treatment or anything of that nature, which then would make it maybe less likely that the accused was the perpetrator of the crime, maybe could point to other possible perpetrators of the crime. So there could be very relevant evidence to come from the father. The, the difficulty is, the optics is, this poor person has suffered the loss of their daughter, and it's incredibly difficult emotionally and psychologically. And being asked questions by the person who's accused of that homicide is probably a torture beyond belief. That being said, there may be relevant evidence to come out in cross-examination. I haven't looked at the transcript or the facts that's come out from the cross. I'm not sure if anything relevant did come out. But it is a right that an accused has. Uh, would, do you think Smitch or Millard will take the stand in this case at all? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, and if that's think, the case, then Millard would be questioning Smitch, would he not? Well, Smitch is taking the stand, then he would ha- they would cross-examine him, correct? Mm. Um, and uh, if Mr. Millard takes the stand in his own defense, which he has the right to, uh, he'll be cross-examined by the Crown. Um, but he would be able to give his own rendition when he hits the stand of what he says, uh, I guess, alleviates his liability in this case, and then the Crown would cross-examine him. How will the jury view this, especially with the victim's father being questioned by the accused? You know, that's a very interesting question. I've always had great faith in juries to execute their duties appropriately. Um, They're watching a spectacle unfold right now, which is something which is a rare spectacle. It's a high-profile murder case, but it's with somebody representing themselves. So they're watching something, and the dynamic of it is probably quite disturbing. The first day, you had a lot of fairly serious and emotionally difficult facts come out. But over time, I think juries settle into their position as a judge of the facts, and they start to become objective, and they take a dispassionate view of it. I may be wrong to some extent, but my experience with juries is extensive, and I find that they are able to execute those duties fairly well. 
That doesn't mean that they're not affected emotionally by these facts, but they generally are able to hang in there and, and, and try and decipher what are the important facts in the case to help them make their decision at the end of the day. But, but no doubt this is certainly a weird spectacle for them to have to view. Uh, is there any chance or would Dellen Millard have the choice to, uh, you know, as the case is progressing, bring in a lawyer to take over for him? Or is it, once this sets, is set in stone, that's the way it is and, unless we start over? It's always, po- it's always possible. I mean, there, come, there could come a point where Mr. Millard might say to the judge, I'm unable to continue without counsel. There's counsel available. Um, and maybe with a short adjournment, the counsel could come in and try and assist. The difficulty is any lawyer trying to step in mid-proceeding as to the way uh, the case has been run by an unrepresented accused would be almost an unmitigated disaster. I mean, I, I would not want to be in that situation, and most lawyers would not. I think what most appropriately could happen is if there came a point where Mr. Millard said, look, I'm, I'm not able to continue to represent myself, the court might consider appointing an amicus, a lawyer who would step in as a friend of the court to try and assist with respect to Mr. Millard's defense. And that person, there, again, there may be a short adjournment to allow the person to get up to speed on some of the evidence and to assist, but it doesn't put the full weight of the defense on that lawyer. But to really have somebody step in, even after the first few days of a trial, to try and take it over, I think almost would result in, in fairness in a mistrial, because I can't see confidently a lawyer coming in and doing a very efficient job and wanting to do that job, frankly. Where do you see this going? Do you see this... Uh, is is Dellen Millard taking advantage of the system here, whether it be delays or mistrials or what have you? I mean, could I mean, is this just delaying the inevitable for him? Not necessarily. I mean, we, we've this isn't this isn't unprecedented. We had a, a very well known case many years ago in Newmarket where we had an unrepresented accused. Uh, he drew out the proceedings far too long. But in this case, um, you know, it, it, it may not result in a mistrial. It may just go along uh, according to the projected timeline. And uh, the case may go to the jury and we'll have a verdict. I mean, something absurd may happen that, that could cause a mistrial, but I know this judge will work very hard to ensure uh, as much as possible that there will not be a mistrial and that the trial will be fair because the interests of the uh, accused as well as the interests of the victim's family are all at stake here. And it's everybody's interest to make sure that this trial gets done as fairly as possible and gets completed. Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. Joseph, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have been talking about uh, Premier Wynne last hour and, of course, uh, the libel notice that she has, uh, I guess, has she filed it or is she still just talking about it at this point against PC leader Patrick Brown? Patrick Brown says, if you're going to go, let's go. Otherwise, drop the whole thing. Uh, He says it's a cynical attempt to distract uh, the public. Some may say it's just attracting more attention. And then also, uh, as well today, uh, trying to get thrown out the uh, bribery allegations against uh, the Liberal Party. This is going on in Sudbury in regard to the Sudbury by-election of a couple of years ago. Uh, So lots going on there. Uh, But in all of that, we hear more about Kathleen Wynne than we do about Patrick Brown. Uh, I've talked to many uh, political experts that say you're not going to hear anything from him until we get to election time because... 
Kathleen Wynne has enough rope along with the Liberal Party that they can just keep doing what they're doing and hanging themselves right up until election. And he's and his party is silly to say anything at this point. Just let the Wynne stuff all kind of run its course. And then when it's election time, uh, start talking about election issues. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media, uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. The latest uh, column in uh, Troy Media is Unlocking the Mystery of Ontario Leader Patrick Brown. And Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this today. Oh, oh my pleasure, Scott. First of all, why is there a mystery around uh, Ontario PC Leader Patrick Brown? The mystery has basically been that although people have obviously announced in opinion polls their support for the PC party, and right now they're leading throughout the province, and if an election were held today, they would certainly win with an easy margin, probably form a small majority of some sort, but it would be very comfortable. Yet the average Ontarian really knows nothing about the man who would be premier, which is Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown. You know, as I said, jokingly, my column, he could be in front of a police lineup today. Most people wouldn't be able to identify him. Mm. They just don't seem to know a lot about his politics, his values, and his views. Or whatever they do here, they've heard either hearsay or secondhand, thirdhand in the media, from friends, from politicos, etc. And what basically has happened the last few years since uh, Patrick Brown became the PC leader in 2015 is just an enormous amount of confusion about what he stands for, what he represents, and how he would eventually govern this province if he wins next June's provincial election. So what I basically did was I wrote a very long column from a personal point of view. I've known Patrick Brown, believe it or not, for close to 25 years, which is longer than most people in the media and a heck of a long longer than most people in politics have ever been uh, dealt with him or been accustomed with him. We met many years ago in Toronto when we were both uh, volunteers for a summer in the constituency office. So you for, would have been quite young at this point. Yeah, I was in, well, let me see. I was, if it was about 25, I was about 23 or 24 in those days. And he is about uh, seven years younger than me. So let's say 16, 17, somewhere in that wow. neighborhood. Hmm. So we met a long time ago there, and basically we worked for Isabel Bassett, who some people may remember mm-hmm. as a former progressive conservative MPP and cabinet minister as well under uh, Mike Harris. So it goes back a long way, and we've remained in friendly contact ever since. We've discussed politics, personal life, etc. So there is no mystery to Patrick Brown for me. I understand what he is. I've always understood what he is. And what is shocking to me, and we'll obviously get into it a little bit, is how it has been, well, the Ontario PCs have been unable to portray this or basically create an image showing what Patrick Brown really believes on issues, except for scattered comments here and there. Are they really trying at this point, uh, though, Michael? Because it seems they're just kind of trying to lay low. I mean, really, all I've seen about him is the commercial in which he talks about his stutter, which is a great spot. Sure. But, you know, I I mean, are are they really trying to get his, his, his image out there? Well, there have been, remember, there have been some feature pieces and one-on-one interviews with Brown to try and sort of gauge about his uh, political ideas, personal life, family, friends, etc., and just sort of see how he resonates with Ontario voters. I just found a lot of those early attempts to have really just either been lousily done, quite frankly, or missed the mark completely in terms of sort of understanding him. 
So what my piece really does, I believe it sort of ends the conversation. I think we now sort of know what Patrick Brown is. And very briefly, because people can obviously go read it, Patrick Brown is an amalgam of two conservative ideologies that have existed in Canada for many years. Red Toryism, which is left-leaning conservatism, and Blue Toryism, which is right-leaning conservatism. It's a meshing of a, or a model that two former Tory prime ministers, recent ones, Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper, used successfully for many years to balance off interests, to ensure that all voices were heard within the Canadian conservative movement, and to ensure that political bridges were created between different groups or disparate individuals so that they were all working for the same cause, which in that case was the greater good for the country. That's what Patrick Brown is trying to do. He is me melding the, using the same political formula, melding the two same ideologies, and trying to create a better road and a more impressive road for Ontario. And actually, many of his own views mesh quite nicely, believe it or not, with most Ontarians. Why does it appear, or do people make it appear, that the, that the right is more splintered in what they, what they think and what their thoughts are, more divert the left is? People think that all these different elements to it and the left really only has one or two. Is that accurate? No, it's not accurate. In fact, actually, all political ideologies, and this is something I've concentrated on since I was a university student, so it goes way, way back, it's not true at all. The right and the left have many, many, many different splinter groups. Here's a very easy one to begin with. Conservatives we know about red Tories and blue Tories. I've just explained them. There are also different types of right-leaning individuals who have linked with the Conservative Party. Libertarians, the small faction of classical liberals that are still left. There's a whole amalgam of people that actually fit the right-leaning umbrella. The left-leaning is actually quite diverse, too. For example, the Liberal Party, which tends to be centrist overall, does have a right-leaning wing, which are basically known as business liberals, and a left-leaning wing, which, is no, which are known as welfare liberals. So those two groups also vie for a fight for power, try to ensure that someone they believe in will actually move forward and become the leader. The NDP as well, Scott, is a, I wouldn't say necessarily a, a centrist position, basically a kind of a middle-of-the-road position that, say, a Jack Layton or a Tom Mulcair has tried to represent by balancing all interests very much a radical position, sort of similar to the old waffle movement, and I'm sure if some of your listeners, including old unionists, would probably remember them quite well. The waffle movement tended to be very, very radical. That was linked with James Laxer many years ago. And you see people like Nikki Ashton and others who kind of represent that, again, to the far left of the political spectrum. Plus, there is also in the NDP a whole group of left-of-center people that are either close to radical, not quite radical, or just are more, more towards the left than they are towards the center. So that pushes them further center-left. Jagmeet Singh, for example, would certainly be an example of that, the current federal NDP leader. So no, the political right and the political left are splintered. They both are. So that's how these fights occur. That's how these factions are built. And those are the sort of battles that usually happen to determine who your slate of candidates will be and ultimately who the leader of your party will be. Why have the others then had such a heyday or field day by trying to determine who Patrick Brown is? I mean, you know, you say yourself in the column, I've watched, uh, I've watched the many twists and turns in the story, and I've never uh, seen so much confusion and or misinformation uh, reported about a Canadian political leader. Right. How does the party let that happen? Well, look... You know, and I mean, you can't we, just blame this on the media, Michael. 
Well, I mean, because you know what, Patrick Brown has not been banging down my door for an interview. Sure, absolutely. Well, look, I don't know what the the deal is with Patrick Brown in your station. That's something the two of you obviously have to work out. I can't speak for him. I don't work for the party, Scott, so I really don't know. These are just my not opinions. that we have been banging down his door either. I just want to clarify that as well, Michael. Okay, okay, fair enough. I'll accept that too. Look, I mean, I'm sure there's always a way to figure out uh, some sort of a relationship, and I'm sure an interview will be conducted down the road. That's the best I can give you there. But in terms of the reason why this has happened. I agree with you in part that the Ontario PCs have sort of allowed Kathleen Wynne, the current premier, and her Liberal government to implode. For that reason, it's been able, they've been allowed to surge in the polls while she and her party have quite frankly dropped, not necessarily to the nether world, but they're not too far from it. Now, certainly eight months is a long time in politics, and next June's election could end up being very, very different. We all know that. But the big problem is that when the Ontario Liberals get into a campaign mode, and that is something that Premier Kathleen Wynne is exemplary at. She is a great politician. There's no question about that. You can hate her policies, and I hate most of them, but there's no doubt she knows what she's doing when it comes to politicking as a strategy. She's very different on the stage, and that will mean when she goes door to door that that big lead will dissipate. Hence, it's important that the Ontario PCs now focus, A, on policies, which are obviously very important, and that's what you run a campaign on, and B, what their leader, who their leader is, what he represents, and what he believes in, and where he is coming from. My column, for what it's worth, has at least lit the flame. I have started that little light to show this is what Patrick Brown is all about. This is the person I've known for close to a quarter century. I know what he believes in. Now you have a better idea. From there, they can build it into a huge machine where they move on and discuss policy issues that fit within A, Patrick Brown's worldview, and B, Ontario's worldview, or the party's worldview, which is obviously very different now than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And and they basically will have to build issues that are important to Ontarians, which is smaller government, lower taxes, including more take-home pay at the end of the year, and more individual rights and freedoms and try to encourage Ontario, as, again, as an economic powerhouse, to encourage investment back into the province, to get Ontario away from being a have-not province where the economy has struggled for years. And aside from Charles Souza, the Ontario finance minister, saying how hunky-dory things are, if you really look at it pound for pound, this economy is lousy in Ontario. It is time to improve it. We need better policies and better ideas. My belief is that, Ontario, is that Patrick Brown, the Ontario PCs, will help in that regard. What is the biggest uh, misconception about Patrick Brown? And before you answer that, I will say that he will flip-flop and go back. Like they're trying to paint him like a far-right winger, and that as soon as he gets in, you're going to lose all of this, and bing, bang, boom, 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 as far as women's rights and mm-hmm. sex ed and all this sort of, sort of thing. What do you think the biggest mis- misconception is of Patrick Brown? Well, I think the biggest misconception is that people really don't have a conception of what he is. You have actually certainly explained something that I think has been lingering around for two years that needed to be eradicated, and without sounding like an egotist, I believe I've eradicated in my column. You're, you're quite right. People have pointed out some of his voting, or his voting record and some of his voting patterns when he was a federal MP for Barrie, Ontario, 
and he actually supported things like you know basically opening up the same-sex marriage debate again you know possibly reopening the abortion debate and everyone looked at campaign life coalition endorsing him and saying well what on god's name is this is this the sort of person we want to have in power or at least some people did so you have to sort of go back and understand why he did all these things. And in my column, I mentioned a two-year-old column that the Toronto star Chantal Hébert wrote about Patrick Brown, not necessarily in a praiseworthy tone, but the pieces I plucked were based on a, a single interview she had had with Brown as a federal MP. I have no idea when it was done. It wasn't mentioned in the piece, where he explained directly why he did each vote. For example, with same-sex marriage, and I remember this because I was in Stephen Harper's prime minister's office, the PMO at the time, he, was, he basically voted alongside his party in that way, as other Tory MPs did, to basically test the House of Commons to see if there was any interest or any hunger to discuss same-sex marriage again, or whether we're just going to leave it as is, accept it as the law of the land, and move forward. That makes a lot of sense to me, and it should make a lot of sense to listeners. With respect to the abortion debate, you know, he directly said when he voted in favor of reopening it, which he now does not support, as we know, as Ontario PC leader, and he wouldn't do it as premier, when he was a federal MP, he basically said he wanted to respect his constituents' wishes because many people in his constituency obviously regard abortion as an important issue. He is their representative, so he basically represents the people or those people. Ergo, he wants to express their points of view and values. This isn't unique, Scott. Preston Manning, the former Reform Party leader, did something very similar with abortion as well. Mr. Manning strongly opposes abortion and still does to this day. However, many people in his Calgary writing actually did not oppose it, or they sort of had a bit of a neutral position on abortion and didn't really know where they stood. So he tempered his discussion and mentions of abortion as a federal MP to respect his own constituents' wishes. This is not unique. It's not a game we play. This is something that we should find to be honorable in our politicians, because you don't hear it very often, and Patrick Brown did the same sort of thing. So how does Patrick Brown or the party react when the liberal ads start trying to reveal his past in these statements? Look, I mean, Working Families has just released an ad, as you probably know, which is doing the same thing, that he had a 100% pro-life record. You know, is this really representative of the way Ontarians think? That's what they're trying to do. I think now if people, not just because I want people to read my column, I hope they do, but I think if people start to think about this issue a little bit more and dig a little deeper into what Patrick Brown actually believes and has said for many, many years, plus the comments that he made to, say, Ms. Hebert and others as time went along, you'll actually see that a lot of these things are just nothing more than political spin. And yeah, I engage in political spin too. I definitely know what it's like. I am a, a doctor in good standing in that world. At the same time, spin or no spin, the way that working families and others are going to try to push along Patrick Brown's so-called record on issues like being pro-life or just on issues of life, marriage, etc., they may want to actually go, A, directly to Patrick Brown and ask him, B, in, in examine for themselves different statements that he's made, 
and basically direct themselves to the point that, well, hold on a second, maybe that isn't clearly what he did. Maybe he was acting like a political representative, an old-style politician that we always sort of hoped for and wanted more so many decades ago and see less of today, and that maybe Patrick Brown really is trying to balance off issues, both on the left and the right of his party, to ensure that all voices are heard, that all, basically all wishes are met to some degree, and that the province, and including his own riding, can move forward with ideas that are important to the health and welfare of Ontario. That's not a bad thing to be. That's a good way to be, and it's rare to see. It's not my way of conservatism by any means, Scott. I'm different than my friend. I really am. But I respect his position. I have seen his position for many years, and in the cases of Stephen Harper and Brian Mulroney, they were used successfully. Why can't Patrick Brown do the exact same thing for Ontario? Michael, tell everybody where we can find your column. Certainly, you can go to the Troy Media website. That's a syndicate that I write for. I've been with them since late 2015. www.troymedia.com. Look for my shining face. You'll find it. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times as well. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And my pleasure. Take care, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're continuing with another edition of Hotspot Hamilton. One of the initiatives to educate kids is to promote physical literacy. How can improving physical literacy help our kids? To talk more about all of this, Katrusha Moranchuk is with us, sports specialist, city of Hamilton, and Andrea Topic, uh, professional learning consultant for affiliated services for children and youth. Both are in studio now. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No Thank problem. You. Andrea, I'll start with you, a professional learning consultant for affiliated services for children and youth. What's the objective here? What do you do? Uh, well, I support educators and those working in early learning programs throughout the city of Hamilton, and I support them right in their programs with the children, but I also do professional development, um, kind of cater to what their needs are. And uh, Katrusha, uh, uh, Sports Specialist, City of Hamilton. I'm sure a lot didn't know that this was even a position that existed within the city. Yeah, so I work with sport organizations and help them with things like governance um, and constitutions. Um, also, if they have any uh, sort of altercations within the organization, we help them with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also work with um, allocating all our fields and diamonds and uh, ice surfaces, floor surfaces to those sport organizations, both for youth and for adults. Physical literacy, I don't hear that term a lot. Define it. What's the definition of physical literacy? So there's actually um, a consensus statement Mm -hmm. um, on physical literacy uh, from 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, So physical literacy, really clear definition. uh, The motivation, confidence, physical competence, knowledge, and understanding to value and take responsibility for engagement in physical activities for life. What that really means is um, getting everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, our focus with our, the project that we're working on is um, primarily on youth. Um, but getting the message across that physical literacy is as important as your ABCs, your one, two, threes, and your do How is it convincing people of that when it seems for the last several decades 
we've basically been saying to kids and parents, gym's not important, physical activity's not important, what's important is math and science and all the other STEM, uh, you know, core uh, subjects. Why and how is this all shifting? And and anyone can jump in and answer this. I think there has been a ton of research Mm -hmm. that's come out recently. And when I say recent, I mean kind of uh, very late 90s, early 2000s. And it's focused on, you know, neurodevelopment and how how brains work. Um, There is research that that shows that movement uh, stimulates areas in our brain for learning. So... You know, children need to be able to move in order to be able to learn properly, to learn to the best of their abilities. Is it a case of, uh, you know, it's like the old days with recess. They got to go out and just go nuts and just burn off all that energy so they can come back in and be attentive to what's going on. Is that what you're trying to do here? Maybe a little bit. Uh, What we're kind of looking at is making sure that kids have those fundamental movement skills. So things like striking, running, walking, jumping, um, hopping, leaping, all those different things that not only help with sport, but help with daily activity. So being able to, um, you know, go from one surface to another, um, whether it's an icy road versus a dry road, right? Knowing how to handle that that environment um, and being able to then translate that into daily activities, into sport, into just basic physical activity like hiking or you know, going for a bike ride. Have we come to that point where we have to we have to be this detailed about going from one surface to another? I mean, this this seems odd. But I think it, it happens naturally. So we take for granted. I mean, yeah. and, and I think, you know, I know certainly my generation was that play outside till the streetlights come on. Sure. So I had that opportunity yeah. to engage significantly in free pay in free play. Children don't have that anymore. So they're not able to successfully navigate things like running from a soccer field transferring to a blacktop pavement that that throws them off um and it's it's how do they walk with a device in their hand and step over a curve (laughs) yeah well that's a whole other uh, that's (laughs) a screen time is a whole other piece of this (laughs) yeah yeah huge barrier Um, well uh, let's let's get to the screen time talk about this and how big this is how big an obstacle this is for both of you it's a huge obstacle. So literally uh, this morning, <laughs> I pulled out the recommendations, which actually they were in partnership with uh, Participation, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong, so don't quote me on this, but I could. <laughs> uh, I believe that the um, Canadian Pediatric Society was also part of this. So the recommended screen time for children two years and younger mm-hmm. is zero. Yeah, nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. Zero, zero, zero. Um, so much for baby Einstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, guilty, guilty. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's gone now, though, isn't it? Uh, people still it's using fallen it? off the because yeah, it's not a, apparently it's not as good for them as we thought it was. No, no, it's really not. <laughs> Although the cat seemed to like it quite a they lot. They loved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> but you know, that's a big piece of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you look at that's just I'm when I say screen time in my head, I think of you know our cell phones and tablets and things like that, then you also consider televisions. And, I mean, look at television now. When I was a kid, you had a couple cartoons, you know, maybe at lunchtime, Mm -hmm. stuff on Saturdays. Now it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can find cartoons and everywhere. So 
kids are spending a whole lot more time in front of screens in various formats, computers. I mean, it's it's part of their education now. So we need to be very aware. This is almost a du- this is almost a double edged sword in the sense that. Um, we've seemed to put more stress on academics than physical education, which I can certainly understand in some in, in some corners. Uh, but not only that, we're, we're doing less. But also now we have this extra distraction within a screen. So it's almost you got you you know there's two well, things it, against you. It's right all there. about balance, mm-hmm. and we need to have a balance. Um, you know, in terms of you know the fact that we have seen physical activity and and gym class die off there needs to be a balance and that's what a lot of this research is saying you know so you mentioned about going outside for recess it's not just to burn off that excess energy mm-hmm. but it also literally stimulates children's brains so that when it is time to come back into the classroom they're able to focus uh, the big question is, and you raised it, how do you balance this? Katrusha, I'll put this to you. Yeah. Um, you know, with so many people and it being such a competitive world and your kids got to be great at this, and it seems that sports has fallen off the, unless, of course, your kid's going to be in the NHL or, or something like that, <laughs> it seems to have fallen off the radar. How do you get uh, people, uh, especially those who really want their kids to excel. I mean, there's lots of parents out there. They won't accept nothing less than a doctor or a lawyer or this, that, or the other. How do you convince them they need to take part out of their day and, and have physical literacy? Well, part of uh, what we've been, how we kind of came together was through the Hamilton Moves uh, project. Mm-hmm. And that came through uh, a grant from the Ontario Trillium Foundation. So there's definitely at uh, some pretty high levels of a high recognition of the importance of physical literacy. And like you said, it's common sense, really. Mm-hmm. It's make sure you're moving, make sure you're doing a number of different activities in a number of different environments. Um, and through our uh, through the Hamilton Moves project, the ultimate goal is to make sure that that messaging of the importance of physical literacy starts at birth mm-hmm. and goes right through yeah. and goes right through to active for life. Right. We have long term athlete development, which is sort of what you're speaking to in terms of of sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but really active for life means you're not sitting on the couch watching TV 24-7. You're out moving, yeah. right? You're so using this your just body. isn't about gym class or recess, as you were mentioning. No. It's just doing things. What are you talking about when it's not gym class? When you're not, What are you doing? What are you... So it or can, is it anything but sitting and watching a screen? Well, kind of. I mean, it's really making sure that those, those like we talked about, the fundamental movement skills, right? Using those basic skills, tying them together, right? If you look at um, literacy, mm-hmm. if you don't know your ABCs, you can't write a sentence, you can't write a book, you can't read a street sign. Yep. Uh, so if you can't roll or if you can't throw, you can't play baseball, you can't, uh, you know, if you, if you have trouble moving, you may have trouble raking your leaves. Or, so it, it really goes much further than, than sport. Sport is just what we think of right. automatically. That's a good point. And what we don't realize, perhaps, as we're doing these sports or movements or whatever, we're creating a lifestyle for life, as right. opposed to, oh, yeah. you know, I'm 20, I've never done anything, I, and I don't have any of the physical <laughs> attributes to yep. do it. And, you know, one of the, this grant is focusing on early years, specifically zero to 10. Um, but that's kind of the point of this. Those are the foundational years, mm-hmm. more so zero to six. And if we don't establish those habits and attitudes during those formative years, you're kind of missing the boat if you attack this when you're 20 and think, yeah. oh, I need to start getting 
physically active because all of that stuff forms Mm -hmm. in those early years. Plus, if you're physically active as a kid, it just seems so much easier as an adult. Absolutely. You know, like if you've worked out, if you've done whatever as a a kid, and then you've let it go for a bit, and you decide (laughs) to get back at it. I'm not speaking through personal experience here at all. Um, (laughs) It it seems to be a bit easier than somebody who hasn't had a physically active life and then starts to to do a regime. Well, we were talking about this morning, um, I have a four-year-old, and it's embedded in his life now that yeah. we go for a walk after dinner. Yeah. So he says, well, mama, we can't do that till after our walk. So he understands that. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about with this whole yeah. project is making sure that it's embedded. And yeah. because of our, our partners are um, you know, the Catholic school board, uh, sport Hamilton, sport for life and, and the city of Hamilton and making sure that that messaging is embedded throughout. So from the early years programs in the school board through their, their programs um, and classes and then right up to whether it's a City of Hamilton recreation program or a, a sport organization, just making sure that that physical literacy messaging is embedded. And uh, as much as physical health, um, we haven't talked about the mental health and, and, and what physical activity does for that and how it enriches your mental health. Who wants to touch on that? I mean, you know, you you hear so much about anxiety now with kids in school. This has to help. Well, I think there's a huge connection, definitely. Um, You know, it leads to, I mean, even that's kind of common sense. If you feel better Mm -hmm. physically, um, you know, you're going to be able to to focus. It's going to, it's going to impact your well-being as well. Um, There's a lot of talk about self-regulation right now in the field of early learning. And a lot of this also, there's a huge connection to physical literacy and allowing people um, different ways to calm themselves when they're feeling stressed or, you know, different emotions. They're upset, they're angry, whatever. Um, Some of that is, is very physical. Mm-hmm. Some people need to move. Yeah. Um, you see those fidgets. It's a stress release. It's yeah. a stress yeah. release. Yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah, look at the fidget spinners. Yeah. <laughs> the fidget spinners, yeah. Those Which are went from tool gone to Gone a little, yeah, really <laughs> out of control. Um, but it's <laughs> things like that. And a lot of, um, you know, education programs in general, not just early years, but, you know, high schools now, they have ways for children to be able to move in programs. So you'll see desks sometimes that yeah. have pedals on them. Um, you'll see classrooms that have a, a trampoline idea. in the back of the room, a little small personal one, so that if these students need to do that, they can go and jump on the trampoline for 10 minutes just to kind of, you know, relieve that stress, enable them to focus better. Just like the Google head office when you think about it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, let's. You, you brought up fidget spinners. Um, value? Do they have a value? Do they not have a value? Are they a distraction? In my experience, uh, you know, I've been out of the classroom since those have come around, but we did encourage um, fidget toys for children that needed it. They actually started like 10 years ago and that were specifically, oh, yeah. f- specifically for and they're autism gen- they were help- helpful yeah. for? Like, you know, those stress balls? Yeah. You yeah. know, I used to make them for mm. students uh, with mm-hmm. a... Uh, what do you call it? A balloon, and yeah. we filled it, fill it Sand. with different objects. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there is definitely a place for some of those, but the the fidget spinner, the fidget cubes, they've gone out of control, yeah. and every kid is using them. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind All of the time. defeated yeah. the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I see people using them while they're driving. Yeah. Oh, oh no. yeah, that's uh, yeah. Oh my. <laughs> that'll no, be the new distraction. No, wait driving. a sec. These are for the kids. <laughs> what are the adults doing with these things? What does that say? 
you made a uh, uh, you you brought up a very valid point. I think it was you, Andrea, that said uh, the old days we used to play until the street lights come on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do we do that? No. No. And you know, um, I believe that technology is is a barrier to that, mm-hmm. um, as well as parents' risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also this idea of being overscheduled yeah. as families. But wait a sec. People. Let's talk about that because. You know, the whole idea is if you keep them busy, uh, you keep them out of the malls, keep them uh, from doing bad things, what's wrong with them being busy? Well, they can still be um, outside playing. They don't have to be in a scheduled in a scheduled organization, mm-hmm. um, a scheduled game. Uh, being outside, being active with your family, with your friends uh, is a great thing. How much did the whole obesity discussion propel this? Um, it's been significant in multiple. It's kind of a a side yeah. discussion to what we have. I mean, we started this not as a response to the obesity, yeah. um, but in a lot of our work, it, it's it comes our up. awareness has been heightened that you know what this is. This is a huge. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not nearly as bad as the states. Yeah, uh, but it is a huge issue. Do you? What do you think causes that? Do you think it's because, and I mean, you could say screen time, all this sort of stuff, but is this the, the, the whole lack of, of focus on physical education that's a couple of decades old now? Is, this, is that catching up with us? Is that what, can we, can we tie it to that at all? I, I mean, there's screens and everything and technology yeah. as well. There's so much into the mix, but it seems to be it's been the last couple of decades that we've sort of hands off the physical education and now we're, we're paying for I'm it. I'm sure it's a contributing factor, yeah. for sure. I think um, there's been a, a big push too, um, like you said before, on academics, 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 and you know whether it's the arts or physical education have been sort of brushed aside as maybe not seen as quite as important sometimes. Um, but I think that's where where sort of we can come in and say, wait a minute, it's not just about phys ed class. It's not just about sport. It's about you know your well being, you know your physical well being, your mental well being, your emotional well being. I mean, we your all feel better when we're active. Yeah, we all feel better when we're active. Yeah, and you know, at the end of the day, um, if you look at lots of successful people, they have very well balanced lives. They're not just you know right. in the office uh, for however many hours a week or at work for so many hours a week. They do take time to to do the things that need to be done. Why does that message get to some and not others? I don't know, but you look at any, I mean, if you do look at the sport world, you look at any Olympic athlete, I, you know, they probably haven't, I mean, Wayne Gretzky didn't only play hockey. Yeah, Wayne Gretzky yeah. played lacrosse. He played yeah. all these different sports. Yeah. So, you, you know, when you look at um, kids, uh, you know, you have kids who are playing one sport all year round um, and, you know, really just getting them out and playing and just moving yeah. um, mm-hmm. rather than everything being organized, everything being around structured one sport or something like that. Uh, because we are so structured, have we forgot how to play? Yes. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. It's something that we're dealing with in um, early years quite frequently. Um, you know, that and play has all of a sudden become kind of a, a taboo word. Yeah. Uh, it's coming back the last few years. Why is it a taboo word? Because you're wasting time? You're, you're wasting not doing time. something constructive? It's not. But it's it is not totally constructive. That's um, the thing. Yeah. I think there's, it is totally constructive. Yeah. That's yeah. how kids learn. Yeah. But I think there's a misunderstanding. Um, people think it's just playing. They don't realize how much is actually going on when children are playing. I remember uh, I've interviewed uh, Walter Gretzky, Wayne's dad, yeah. many times over the years. 
And I remember him very vividly saying, I don't get all these kids that are playing hockey all year round. You know, Wayne played hockey in September until the spring, and then he started playing baseball. He never picked up his hockey stuff till it was time to get back in. Um, it seems like we are hyper-focused to physical activity, but only if there's a certain reward at the end, like a scholarship for my kid, which if, you know, gee, take that attention, just put it into your studies, the kid will get there and just have them physically active. What are your thoughts on, on, on concentrating so much on I, one sport? I think that, you know, children, people in general, need to have diverse opportunities. They mm-hmm. need to have that balance that you talked about. And, you know, in terms of physical literacy, if you have your child, say, in one sport and you're highly developing them in that sport that's great but you're missing out on a whole other piece like that's that's awesome that your kid is really great at hockey they can skate really well you know they can stick handle but what about giving them an opportunity to play another sport because by kind of zeroing in you're only highlighting and focusing particular skill set how do parents let kids have their choice? Because, you know, I'm, both my kids play hockey, and uh, they're in house league. They're not in anything special, but there's lots of kids there that are trying real yeah. hard to get to the next level. And, um, and I'm not sure if the kids want it or if it's just great because the parents want it. And, and I've seen lots of kids that, you know, once they get to 15 and 16, they go from being extremely active to just, I'm out. I don't want to do it anymore. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there when you said, is it the parents or is it the kids? I think sometimes it's a it's a, uh, a combination of both yeah. and the school and, you know, all, their environment because we're scared to let kids play, like you said, because, you know, we feel like we're wasting time or we're afraid we're putting them at risk to fall off a rock at a playground. But yeah. What do they learn by climbing that rock? Well, they learn how to balance on a different type of environment, right? A different type of uh, structure. So really, they have a lot to gain from that. Like a crosswalk play. at a, you know, like a curb mm-hmm. at a crosswalk. I yep. mean, it's common stuff. It's common yep. sense when you think about well, it. Well, and you can translate the, okay, my kid climbed this at a playground to, hey, they can navigate the street, right? Yeah. And it's it's understanding that balance between um, just getting active and, and having your body being able to, you know, uh, I guess... Uh, respond to a changing environment. It's, uh, you know, it seems that one problem creates another, doesn't it? It's just, we're going all in the same direction. Are we, are we, and we've only got a couple of seconds left here. Are we, are we fixing this? Are we identifying this? Are we making grounds here? Are we just talking about it? We're hoping over the next three years to make some, you know, we have, uh, $550,000 $550,000 with which to make some change within the city of Hamilton what through do you hope our to partners. Do, what do you hope to do with that? Well, we've got a number of um, sort of initiatives, um, things from trying to uh, bring forward um, some specific early years sports blast programming through mm-hmm. um, partnerships with the, with our partners. Some, yeah. some pretty specific training um, for, you know, a lot of educators in the community of Hamilton, so sport people, um, early childhood educators, teachers. Um, we also want to be able to create some messaging for the community, um, consistent messaging, and we want that we want to be able to reach out to parents and to educators to be able to say this is this is huge, this mm-hmm. is important, and we need to support you know, the children's development in this. We've also, um, this year was our the fifth, fifth I think, yeah. uh, physical literacy summit, and it was really successful. We do it every year mm-hmm. for five years now. Yeah, we had about 400 people there, so. 
People are getting the message. We're, They're starting we're, to. We're working on it, yep. Andrea Topic has been with us, professional learning consultant for affiliated services for uh, children and youth as well. Katrusha Maranchuk has been with us, sports specialist, city of Hamilton. Thank you both for coming here and good luck. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.